good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. Your lemon squares taste like ass. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking co-ed showers. We're talking would you like to know more? And we're talking medic. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking, frankly, I find the idea of a bug that thinks is offensive. (laughs) (laughs) i do love that exchange between those two people there's so many funny things in this movie um everyone we are discussing our second paul verhoeven film of the year it's starship troopers (laughs) Mm -hmm. yes a complete like 180 from basic instinct complete and why are we discussing this joe what is the special occasion Ah, this is the 25th anniversary of this movie, which honestly really snuck up on me. It simultaneously feels old and yet not that old. I agree. So it was so funny. So I think I discussed this when we did our um, audio commentary on Anaconda on the Patreon. I had the VHS of Anaconda when I was eight years old, and mm-hmm. I watched. I would come home every day and watch it. And I had the trailers in front of that movie memorized. Like it was, I know what you did last summer. It was Fifth mm-hmm. Element. It was The Mask of Zorro. And it was Starship Troopers. Oh, man. All those movies are bangers. Oh, na- uh, uh, <laughs> when we go through that, what, what's going on in 1997 to help this movie flop? Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll you'll be like, holy shit! We said 1999 was a good year for movies, but 1997, holy shit! Ah, uh, it's the sweet spot, isn't it? Great year. I will say though that um, I actually hated this trailer when I was a kid. I never thought this looked good because it looked like a macho right. war movie, you know. Mm-hmm. And I watched this a bunch on TV as a kid because I feel like it showed on FX or maybe sci-fi a lot. But um, oh, I could see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't get to see it uncut a lot, but um, I watched it a lot. And this was probably my first rewatch in, oh, God, at least 10 years. But Mm -hmm. still, all those lines that are in the trailer, like, they stuck out of my mind. It was like, oh, yeah, that's why I didn't want to see this movie. (laughs) Oh, I mean, I know that you're one of those people who advocates for not judging a film against its marketing. But, like, the marketing for this movie is a fucking disaster. (sighs) Joe, Joe. Wait, did you see this in theaters? I was trying to remember that. I think I might have. This definitely seems like a movie my dad and I would have gone to see. We were in the habit of seeing very dumb action films, Mm -hmm. which check. Although I would argue this movie is actually quite smart. But uh, yeah, so dumb action movies or like teen comedies a la American Pie, Road Trip, that kind of shit. Mm -hmm. So this would have been in the right vein for my dad and I hitting the theater. I mean, it was right. I was going to say it's right around Thanksgiving, but American Thanksgiving. So, <laughs> yeah. So like a month late. But sure. <laughs> well, OK. I, I don't want to like rush us, but I we have to get into how this movie came to be because <laughs> it, everyone, if you listen to our episode on Showgirls from a few years ago, I think we made a crack where it was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Elizabeth Berkeley, like, you know, this killed her career. But Paul, Paul Verhoeven got one hundred million dollars to make Starship Troopers right after that movie. <laughs> We 100% joked about that. And I think we even referenced it in our Hollow Man commentary where we were like, how did he convince him to let him have this much money after Starship Troopers flopped so badly, too? And I don't really have an answer for you for Hollow Man, but I do have an answer (laughs) for you for this. So 
Let's start at the beginning, which is in 1987. <laughs> what? <laughs> Ten years before this movie comes out. So, oh, okay. Since the release of RoboCop in 87, its producer, John Davison, had wanted to develop another project that would reunite members of the same creative team, like writer Ed Neumeyer and stop-motion animator Phil Tippett. And I'm honestly not familiar with Phil Tippett. I only heard his name for the first time when that movie Mad God was doing the festival circuit last year. Oh, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. But in case you didn't know, and by you I mean the general you, because I'm assuming you know who that is, Joe. I do, yeah. He is an Oscar and Emmy Award-winning visual effects supervisor and producer who specializes in creature design, stop motion, and computerized character animation. So on top of RoboCop, his work has appeared in the original Star Wars trilogy and Jurassic Park. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just small films only. Tiny bit. But he also worked on RoboCop, and so, you know, they were like, hey, let's get you for, well, we yes. don't know what we're getting him for yet. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. Davison struggled to progress any relevant projects, uh, and in Neumeyer, uh, the screenwriter had separately been struggling to develop new story ideas alongside his RoboCop co-writer, Michael Miner. The pair eventually realized that their writing partnership was no longer working, so Neumeyer went off on his own and began developing a story treatment called Bug Hunt at Outpost 7 with the idea that it would be a, and I quote, a big, silly, jingoistic, xenophobic, let's go out and kill the enemy movie, but with bugs? But also a war movie, but also a teenage romance. And lo and behold, that is what we get. Yes. Yep, but not quite there yet. So <laughs> let's go into the 90s. In December of 1991, Neumeyer brought his idea to Davison at Warner Brothers, uh, which also headquartered TriStar Pictures, with whom Davison had a pre-existing developmental deal. So after discussing Neumeyer's idea, Davison realized it bore many similarities to the 1959 science fiction novel Starship Troopers by Robert A. Heinlein. Mm-hmm. Okay, have you read this book? I have. It is not like this movie, although it is. It's just where this movie is a satire, that movie is just straight up, like, total bullshit propaganda stuff that okay uh, that's where what i gathered as well so you know the novel received a strongly divided reception on its release for promoting military power and necessary necessary violence <laughs> mm. <laughs> while criticizing liberal social programs but it had remained for some reason an enduringly popular work for over four decades here's the funny thing folks if you do go back and read it nowadays you will not only be like oh god it's just actually not very well written like Robert Heinlein is of a particular generation of science fiction authors, um, but honestly, I find it kind of comparable to things like Battlefield Earth. Ooh, and I've never seen Battlefield Earth or read that book, but that's the Scientology one, right? It is the Scientology yeah, one. Okay. Yeah, it's propaganda. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Neumeyer and Davison had both read the novel as children. <laughs> uh huh. As you do. And considered directly adapting Starship Troopers instead of Neumeyer's story, but <laughs> Davison believed that the film adaptation rights would have already been purchased by that point, and so rather than, you know, do the work and find out... <laughs> just check. No. He encouraged Neumeyer to continue his original idea, later retitled just Outpost 7. So... By late 1992, Davison was working out of Sony Picture Studios when Neumeyer brought him the finished script for Outpost 7, uh, alternately referred to as Bug Hunt. Right. Although Davison liked the treatment, it failed to impress TriStar executive Chris Lee, who flat out rejected it. Mm, bummer. When we think about it, it's like, okay, you want to like spend a bunch of money on a bug movie. Like, mm, maybe. Right. Mm, no, yeah, who is our audience for this? Ex also, we all just watched Tremors flop yes oh my god good point which actually the um the orange blood of the tank bug in this i was like mm -hmm. ooh, graboid blood right 
Um, undeterred, though, Newmeyer and Davison decided to research the film rights to Starship Troopers, believing the more well-known IP would change Lee's mind. So they learned they were available and instead pitched making Starship Troopers, which made Lee more receptive, but they also received broader support from the other executives, including... TriStar head of production Mike Medavov, who had been similarly supportive of making RoboCop. Hmm. So, with the studio's support in place, the rights to Starship Troopers were purchased, and Neumeyer began adapting his Outpost 7 script to more closely fit Heinlein's novel. So, production... <sighs> progress on the adaptation remained slow for the next few years, because, and oh my god, TriStar began irregularly replacing executives, including <laughs> Medavov, their big champion. Right. Yeah, that'll fuck you up. Yeah, um, high-value or risky projects were more closely scrutinized, but even so, Davison spent much of 1993 securing several key crew members, including Phil Tippett and their other RoboCop collaborator, Paul Verhoeven, the latter of whom was the only person ever considered for this job because they determined the fantastical creatures, genre, and political subtext suited his creative sensibilities, which, if you've seen RoboCop, if you've seen Total Recall, that is yeah. very obvious. Yeah, I mean, he is a really good fit for this property. And also, in addition to not being afraid of pushing people's buttons, he can handle the technical stuff. Like, I'd like to think of him and Robert Zemeckis as people who are, you know, they're going to take on a project that's going to stretch them. Um, maybe James Cameron, too. That's actually, a I've never even thought to put Verhoeven in that same ballpark, because I guess while Verhoeven's movies are filled with special effects, I always think of him more as like a director than like a special mm -hmm. effects guy, you know? Yeah. I mean, he takes on less commercially viable pictures. Like I would argue Zemeckis is very much in that Spielberg camp where he yeah. knows what's going to make money. Whereas Verhoeven's kind of like, I will tell you what I would like to do and it might offend you, but also I'm going to make it give me the money. Yeah. I think that's the thing. I always find Verhoeven's work, no matter how good or bad, inherently interesting. Whereas with Zemeckis, oh I'm yes. kind of like, meh. Uh, it's touch and go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Verhoeven is on record saying that the only reason he decided to do the film was Phil Tippett, who he had worked with again on Robocop. Mm -hmm. And, and I love this. He considered himself the director of the live characters with Tippett, his co-director leading filming of the creatures. Oh, wow. Okay. What's important important to note too is about 40 percent of the budget and also like the screen time is b-roll footage so not mm. things that verhoeven was directing himself you know wow. so and a lot of that was falling on tippet too because he was you know doing the all basically all the animation stuff for these bugs that is bananas yeah because mad god is actually billed as tippet's directorial debut Oh, no. Here's the fun part. It is not. It is his second feature film because Phil Tippett's first feature film is Starship Troopers 2. No. Hero of the Federation. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, it kind of also makes sense, except I... I've, I've only seen, I think, clips of that one. I know there's like five of these Starship Trooper movies. All of the other ones go direct to video because this one does not perform well financially. We'll get there. But... I thought that they were all like super janky CGI monstrosities. I wouldn't have thought he would be interested enough to come back to do any of the creaturey stuff. Joe, the hey, so first of all, Edward Neumeyer, the writer of this one, wrote all of them except for the fourth one. Oh no. So yeah, Phil Tippett directs the second one, and, and Neumeyer, the writer, directs the third one, which is the, the return of Casper Vendian as Rico. Oh my god. This sounds like a Saw franchise. Literally, it's like, I, I don't really have a desire to watch these movies, but when I was like, oh shit, like, Dina Meyer comes back in the fifth one, which came out what? five years ago, and is a CGI <laughs> animated film. 
Oh, okay. You know what? I did know some of these details because I definitely listened to the Girl That's Scary episode of it where they just like, I mean, it is a rabbit hole listening to Jazz and Cat try to unpack these sequels where they're just like, I'm going to give this one 10 minutes because that's all I can manage. Well, it's kind of weird. It's like, I mean, like, you know, this one had a hundred million dollar budget. The second one has a budget of seven million dollars and it acts more as a single location body horror film. Yes, that one is apparently kind of decent that's i found an article that was like don't like no joke it's not that bad and it's actually worth your time but yeah it just doesn't have a production budget of a hundred million dollars yeah which i think is why we have the single location but uh-huh anyway so yeah he has he considers phil Tippett his co-director um and verhoven also brought in alan marshall as producer because he worked with him both on basic instinct see previous episode from a couple weeks ago and he was also his producer on his current project showgirls which was in the middle of production when verhoven was brought on board Bah. So, (laughs) again, now we have an answer where we're like, well, how the fuck did Verhoeven get this job when Showgirls flopped? Because he already had the gig. Right. And they probably realize, oh, we're too deep into this. We've sunk too much money into this. We just need to push through. Oh, just wait. So, Neumeyer began adapting the Starship Troopers novel at the beginning of 1993. And he was initially concerned about how to translate the tone of Heinlein's work, especially given the controversy surrounding the novel that identified Heinlein as alternately a conservative, militarist, libertarian, and fascist. Yep. All of those are true. (laughs) It's in the book. 100%. He wanted to write about fascism, but he didn't know how to do it uh, successfully. Um, Even so, he and Davison, again, Mr. Producer Guy, wanted to faithfully adapt the novels and Heinlein's viewpoint. So then I'm kind of like, wait, that doesn't doesn't make any sense because if you want to adapt his viewpoint... (laughs) You want to make the movie fascist. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, even so, he struggled adapting certain aspects, finding the first and third acts of the novel to be narratively strong, but the middle act, focusing on Rico's boot camp experience, to be a lengthy piece that preached to his readership, which would not make for an interesting film. Yeah, because it's all about, like, why you should be a part of the military and how the military is always right. And also, gently homoerotic, if we're being honest, because it's all about Rico's relationship with older men. Yeah, yeah. And I, I really, I, I, I despise boot camp scenes because I just don't like I'm, I, it's one of those things where I'm like, why would anyone subject themselves to this? But <laughs> um, but this movie will explain that. <laughs> there we go. So he identified the elements he considered essential, including the high school opening, boot camp, mm. battles, and the underlying philosophy and sociopolitics, and compensated for the novel's second act by expanding on sequences such as the high school romance, uh, which some people don't like. It's true. Yeah. The first draft was completed on July 8th, 1993, and remained generally faithful to the novel, um, including a secondary alien race known as the Skinnies, a jet-assisted traversal method called the Bounce, and power armor, which granted the troops superhuman strength. And they even sent a copy to Highland's wife, who was, who, who, you know, he's dead at the time. Right. She's like, oh, it's good. Like, she approved, which I love that we do this when authors die. We just send it to their Mm -hmm. wives and say, like, what would he think of this? Sure, you don't have a personality, but you were married to this very well-regarded man, so you should know. It's, oh, God. (laughs) Like, misogyny. It's just everywhere. Everywhere. So that's draft number one. But as development progressed, many aspects would be changed or removed, in part because of financial reasons, but also because of Verhoeven's influence. Verhoeven tried to read the novel, but, and I quote, stopped after two chapters because it was so boring, it really is quite a bad book, and it's a very (laughs) right-wing book. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God, I love him so much. (laughs) Just telling the truth. They're adapting this right-wing fascist novel and bringing in a very liberal European director. 
who hates the source material. Yes, exactly. I love it. It's so good. So he had Newmeyer (laughs) again, instead of finishing the book, he had Newmeyer summarize the narrative for him. (laughs) I love that. I don't want to do the homework. Just tell me the synopsis. So yeah, he found it militaristic, fascistic, and overly supportive of armed conflict, which clashed with Verhoeven's childhood experiences in German occupied Netherlands during Mm. World War II. Yeah, that'll leave a fucking impression on you. And I like again. I love. I, mean, so I don't love that that happened to him, obviously. But like, I love that he has that viewpoint to be like, no, 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 no. We're gonna, we're gonna change this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he decided he would use the basic plot to satirize and undermine the book's themes by deconstructing the concept of totalitarianism, fascism, and militarism. Okay. So mm-hmm. by 1994, the studio had still not agreed to move Starship Troopers out of the development phase and into pre-production. So. Key crew members, including Davison and Verhoeven, decided to produce test footage to demonstrate their intended visual style and tone. Right. Verhoeven was busy filming Showgirls at this point, but he was still determined to direct the sequence himself. So the the resulting scene, which was dubbed The Bug Test, was filmed on July 21st, 1994 and cost $225,000 that was provided directly by TriStar Pictures. Okay. Had a 30-person crew and was shot by John Hora, who shot uh, the Howling, Gremlins, and Matinee for Joe Dante, by the way. Nice. The sequence depicts a a soldier, played by Olympic gold medalist Mitch Gaylord, being pursued and killed by two warrior bugs. And they finished the visual effects by September and screened it for TriStar executives in early October 1994. So again, this is almost three whole years before the movie comes out. Right. Okay. So executives, including the aforementioned Chris Lee and new guy Mark Canton, were impressed with the visual effects and did not realize they had been produced with computer-generated imagery. They thought it was real. Wow. (laughs) Okay. I mean, folks, this is a hard sell nowadays because we look at this and you might look at the special effects and think, they're not that great. I would argue, A, they're not that bad. Like, they've aged reasonably well, but Mm -hmm. also, like, at the time, this was groundbreaking. And I, I actually think, we'll talk about it when we get into the plot, but like, you know, we have a lot of close-ups and <laughs> this is going to sound weird. So one thing I hated about um, A Quiet Place from a couple years ago mm-hmm. was that, you know, we had these CGI creatures, which didn't look very good. But whenever we had a close-up shot of them, it was still bad CGI instead right. of a close-up of a model. And this movie uh-huh. avoids that. We do get models when we are close-up, especially on the brain bug. Right. Yes. So, okay, they approved moving into pre-production, but others remain non-committal on providing any substantial funding as, according to Neumeyer, they did not understand the project. And I think that this is something mm. we see a lot when it comes to satire. Yeah, and particularly this film. I mean, I know that you're going to walk us through how it was received, but it it generally seems like people don't always understand what this movie is trying to do. So I'm not surprised that its own executives struggled with that as well. I agree, but I'm, you know, I'm not going to lie. Like, watching this movie last night, I was like, how... It, it, mm-hmm. it, this is obviously sad. And I'm not saying that to be, like, a, like a <laughs> dick, but, like, this is obviously satire. <laughs> yeah, it's a little surprising. I've actually got an academic article that kind of goes into why people may struggle with it. So we'll we'll see mm-hmm. how you do with that. So by 1994, Verhoeven was still filming Showgirls, but he remained active in that second draft. So again, this is kind of like while this short film is being made and like we're doing the second draft. Um, Among his suggestions was to introduce a romantic subplot between Rico and Carmen. But then he also said, oh, we should combine the male character of Dizzy with a Newmeyer created female called Ronnie, who was romantically interested in Rico. And Mm. I actually think that was probably the, the smartest decision. Not maybe not even for the romance, because... 
I feel like Meh. she's kind of predatory. But right. um, <laughs> she is, yes. But I like that we have this like kind of butch, badass female woman who is a woman <laughs> doing mm-hmm. this in the movie. Yeah, and it supports the kind of utopian underlying piece that reinforces the satire for me, because it's like men and women in this world are equal. uh, Racial inequalities are like mostly avoided. So this idea that Diz could be just as good as Rico is like supportive of this idea that like, oh, well, this is why you would buy into the Federation, because it just eliminates all of the kind of social inequities yeah exactly so um this in turn led newmeyer to develop a romantic triangle between dizzy rico and carmen and another one between rico carmen and xander so other aspects were removed like the skinnies the other alien race because verhoeven mm-hmm. thought too many alien races would be confusing yep but the sub- most substantial change which i think is really funny um is making the enemy more insect-like as verhoeven did not want to see and i quote a bug with a gun in his hand yeah (laughs) were the bugs like i guess were they like the district nine bugs uh i'll be honest i can't remember how they were sort of visually coded but yeah that's probably a fair approximation okay well the most controversial omission from the novel for fans apparently was the power armor it was deemed too expensive because they couldn't like you know afford to have hundreds of people wearing this armor but whatever um yeah i mean basically envision um the kind of mech suits that emily blunt and tom cruise wear it's like that but everybody wears them talk about a movie that underperformed that's really good too but there we go yeah um but also as development continued any further increase in cost risked the production being canceled entirely so again Mm -hmm. literally from day one this thing is like we might cancel this movie Right. I mean, I'm surprised that they even got it as far as they did, considering it sounds like they were very trepidatious about actually moving ahead financially. Yeah. So, okay. Verhoeven described the final script as being about contemporary American politics, such as the lack of gun control and increasing capital punishment under Texas Governor George W. Bush. What? What? Hmm. That's uh, (laughs) I was in Texas during that time. So, woohoo. Yay. He believed that the, all that could potentially lead to fascism. And in his words, the characters of Starship Troopers were fascists who don't know that they are fascists. <laughs> uh-huh. His reasoning being that if he told the world that a right-wing fascist way of doing things didn't work, no one would listen to him. So he decided to make a perfect fascist world. Everyone is beautiful. Everything is shiny. Everything has big guns and fancy ships, but it's only good for killing fucking bugs. So... Mm-hmm. With all that information, Neumeier completed his third and final draft in early 1995. But even then, development continued at a slow pace when Davison put together a detailed budget totaling $90 million, which is based on the third draft. And here's the thing. Davison said TriStar was reluctant to provide this amount, often bringing up the financial failure of the $200 million budgeted Waterworld from 1995. Right. Which was seen by industry experts as an example of excessive spending, you think? Mm Mm-hmm. And had led to the firing of many involved executives at Universal Pictures. TriStar executives determined the only way for Starship Troopers to continue development was to identify a business partner with whom they could split the production costs. So, oh, smart. Okay. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. But Joe, 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 can you guess what studio uh, came in to co-finance this? Oh, gosh. Well, by the tone of your voice, it's going to be somewhat unexpected. It's going to be fucking Miramax. No, but it is someone that um, that Tremors was offered to and they passed. Ah. He eventually attracted the interest after showing the bug test proof around. He was shopping it around. Mm-hmm. Got the interest of Walt Disney Studios. 
<laughs> a meeting was held with, among others, Canton and Mark Platt from TriStar owner Sony, uh, Disney's head of motion pictures Joe Roth, Paul Verhoeven, Davison, and Marshall, and an agreement was made that the studios would produce Starship Troopers via TriStar and Disney's Touchstone Pictures, splitting right. the budget costs and box office profits evenly. In exchange for Touchstone receiving all distribution rights to the film outside of the U.S. and Canada, and hmm. each studio was also given creative input on the film and its marketing. Ooh. Yeah. That's a tricky one. Yep. I mean, when you got TriStar and then fucking Disney about this R-rated, fascistic, satire bug movie. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, that is weird. Because even as you said it, I thought, okay, well, you know, we... We have seen Disney take some big swings, but generally they're not in the R-rated arena for this, right? Well, like, and that's I guess why, I'm... Mm. And well, that's why they have Touchstone, but at, right. at the same time, it's still kind of like, but this just seems... Especially when they passed on Tremors, right? <laughs> yeah, like, you know, Tremors and Arachnophobia feel like they could be of the same ilk, and that was surprising when they didn't bite on Tremors, but this is like a very different beast. Yeah, so, okay, now we are finally out of development, and we are into pre-production, Joe. Mm-hmm. So under the company name Big Bug Pictures, the Starship Troopers team were provided with a large suite in the Astaire building on the Sony lot from which to work. And while pre-production began in earnest by September 1995, after Verhoeven concluded work on Showgirls, he had spent several months producing over 4,000 storyboard images on the script. And wow. conscious of the arachnids, among other CGI elements, would be added after filming, he wanted a detailed image of how each scene would be set out during filming. And this is something that... You do see, I mean, I think you saw it more back then than you do now. I feel like storyboarding isn't as common now. Hmm. But I love that, you know, I mean, this is like his first really big CGI film. And he's like, I'm going to fucking do my homework for this and prepare. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because you have to know how to shoot it and how it's going to look at the end. Because how else are your actors going to move around and then you have to integrate them in? Well, and because this is the early days of CGI and there is so much CGI in the film, we're running into like a Scooby-Doo situation where it's like, here's a tennis ball, act with it. And... Apparently, it was not easy. <laughs> no, I can't imagine it was. Many key crew members were hired during 1996, including Verhoeven's longtime cinematographer, Jost Vacano. And I apologize if it's supposed to be Yost. It might be. Um, mm. But he worked with him on Robocop, Total Recall, and Showgirls. So again, we have another case of a director just keeping his crew around. Right. Tippett also began hiring the nearly 100 additional staff required to realize the arachnids. Um, okay. Mm. I don't normally talk about location scouting in these episodes, but I did want to say that of the many locations scouted, many were government-owned lands like national or state parks because they were looking for something that could be Klandathu, you know, the erected right. planet. Mm -hmm. This was made difficult by an extended period of U.S. government shutdowns in 1996, which were the result of conflicts between Democratic President Bill Clinton and the Republican Congress over funding for education, the environment, and public health in the 1996 federal budget. And these shutdowns made obtaining the necessary filming and associated permits protracted because they were looking at government land. <laughs> My God. It's a funny sort of, just as a sidebar, it's a funny observation of oh, well, I guess the movies are political, even in completely unexpected ways. Exactly. Luckily, they eventually discovered Hell's Half Acre just outside of the town of Casper, Wyoming, which offered, and I quote, colorful buttes and pinnacles, which could portray the alien planets of Clendathu and Planet P. But the location was remote, being about 45 minutes from the Astaire building they all were working at, or housed at. Right. So it required an hour drive every morning at 5 a.m. 
and you want to make movies. I know. God, it's I, I honestly, I don't think I could do it. I think it would, if I went to L.A., I'd be chewed up and spit out. <laughs> but um, it offered other logistical challenges as it was generally underdeveloped land. And so the production had to build roads for the trucks carrying their gear into the canyons for filming. Wow. Anything that could not be driven in had to be lowered by helicopter. But hey, the local government was supportive of the project, helping subsidize the cost of building the roads and the camp. Hmm. I know. Wyoming. Who would have thought? While all this is going on, Davis remained concerned about the studio's ongoing executive turnover because that's still happening and its inconsistent commitment to funding. Again, saying he always felt the plug could be pulled on them at any minute, whereas Verhoeven was like, no, 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 no. Like, because of all this turnover, we were they weren't paying attention to us. And by the time they noticed it, it was too late to cancel it. interesting what a difference of opinions right i know i i I truly have no idea who could be in the right there or maybe it's a combination of both i don't i don't know Uh uh-huh i mean as we've seen this year sometimes studios will pull the plug on like a hundred million dollar project even if you're super far along or like bad girl it's it's completed (laughs) yeah (laughs) but i i i give the tip of the hat to verhoven because he probably has more experience dealing with these kinds of high-risk projects probably so and so hey we're moving into casting now but in casting starship troopers if verhoven wanted a cast who visually embodied the caucasian blonde blue-eyed and beautiful image he had perceived in nazi propaganda films Mm -hmm. like 1935's triumph of the will and 1938's olympia yes and folks just as sorry another sidebar because one of the running jokes that people have when you watch this movie now is that all of the earth scenes are set in buenos aires Mm. and people are like what the fuck this doesn't make any sense yeah verhoven knows (laughs) white people have taken over the world (laughs) yeah and also the most likely to be fascist. Yes. Um, and Verhoeven described it as an idiotic story. Young people go to fight bugs. So he felt the human characters should have a comic book look to them. Which I love. Can you imagine your director saying, well, the reason I cast you is because you look like a Ken doll and you've got a personality to match. Hi, Casper Van Well, <laughs> so that's the thing. Like, he, apparently, there's a quote from Verhoeven like years after this came out where he said that the film could have benefited from casting actors for their ability instead of their looks. And... I, I actually, I, I really don't think anyone's that bad here, if only because it is melodramatic. So I think mm-hmm. that the performances are complementary to that. Yeah, I've always read it as they know that they're ridiculous and they are acting appropriately. Like, I think Denise Richards comes off the worst because she seems to be the one who's the least in on the joke. Um, I also think her character is just kind of a... Oh, her character sucks. Uh, Carmen's a bore. I I will say, okay, so by by pure coincidence, I watched the, you know, 1994 uh, newly recovered classic, Tammy and the T-Rex, this week. And despite the fact that this is a, by all metrics, a bad movie, Mm -hmm. it's delightful. Um, But Denise Richards gives this, like, really earnest performance where you're like, I believe that you're in love with that T-Rex. So, right. She's done good, but I, I just yeah, this this role here. But also at the time, so television actors were still generally ignored when casting films. And again, if y'all go back and listen to our episode on Elvira from a few weeks ago, you will uh, hear us talk about that. Mm-hmm. The production looked at shows like Melrose Place and Beverly Hills 90210, which featured young, photogenic, but less well-known actors like Casper Van Dien, Denise Richards, and Dina Meyer. So about six main actors, and this included Van Dien and Meyer uh, and Jake Busey, 
and then 24 extras undertook a 12-day boot camp training session under Dale Dye. And I almost overlooked this, but Dale Dye is um, a decorated Marine veteran of the Vietnam War, but he's also the founder and head of Warriors Incorporated, which is a technical advisory company specializing in portraying realistic military action in Hollywood films. And he also did all the work on the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers and the Pacific and video games like the Medal of Honor series. Okay. So he knows the shit, is what you're saying. He does. So the boot camp talked basic combat skills and tactics as Dai perceived how they may have evolved centuries in the future. Activities included a daily three-mile run and other physical training in the very thin air of the area, which was 6,000 feet above sea level. Oh, God. I know. Um, with harsh conditions including two feet of snow and ice following a blizzard, windstorms. Some people did drop out, but... What, this is what I love. As Denise Richards was not in the infantry cast, she did not have to participate, but she chose to anyway because oh. she thought it would be important. And it helped her, Van Dien, and Jake Busey bond while huddling together for the warmth for warmth during the blizzard. Wow. Okay. You know what? Trooper for her. And again, like with my Denise Richards kick right now, like I've been looking at just interviews with her. She is... Like, more recent interviews. She's so mm-hmm. gracious and kind when talking about her past works on films. Like, she'll be, she'll acknowledge when it's, like, silly or stupid, but she'll be like, but I had a fun time. Like, right. <laughs> and I just, I want to meet her so bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, uh, you need to talk to Michael Verratti then. He works with her somewhat frequently, oh so he's always had really, really nice things about her. Oh, my God. I mean, she seems wonderful. And it, it, she almost made me start watching Real Housewives, Joe. <laughs> so close the real housewives connection keeps coming up and yet we just will not take the hook won't do it um okay so principal photography began on april 29th 1996 with six weeks of filming in hell's half acre the location again featured extreme weather but we uh, outside of the blizzard we also had very warm days uh with frigid evenings and it took a toll on much of the on-site equipment uh, requiring various replacements to be flown in on a regular basis. Cha-ching. The location was also beset by torrential rain, again blizzards, and windstorms with wind up to 80 miles an hour. The site had to be evacuated temporarily after rain mixing with the bentonite in the ground created a slick surface, so they like literally had to just evacuate everything. After the rain stopped two weeks later, miles, miles of electrical cable, some equipment, and even cars had been lost under the mud. But even so, only a few days were lost to the weather as a local warehouse had been converted into a soundstage for backup scenes to be filmed. But the weather conditions also took their toll on the crew, with respiratory illnesses, exhaustion, and heat stroke from wearing heavy costumes in the 115 degree weather. Um, that's 46 degrees for you, Joe. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Dozens of people per day were treated for the ailment, and production had to be shut down for a week at a cost of 1.5 million a day after it affected Jake Busey. Yikes. On top of all that, we had some other issues. Over the Memorial Day weekend, an incoming driver crashed into a car transporting several crew members and Casper Van Dien. The driver of the car and two crew members were killed. Holy shit. Another incident saw an intoxicated crew member say the word bomb out loud on a flight back to LA, which mm. led to his arrest, the plane mm. not taking off, and the other crew members left behind, which lost them a day of filming. <laughs> Oh, boy. I I mean, you can't make this shit up. So despite the difficult conditions and obstacles, principal photography concluded after six months of filming, generally six days a week. We're ending on October 16th of 96, which is honestly, all things considered, not very long after the intended finishing date. And then second unit filming uh, concluded a week after on October 23rd. 
Um, and again, yeah, it is estimated about 40% of Starship Troopers constituted second unit film scenes. That is astronomically high. <laughs> I know. So everyone, again, whenever there is not a main actor on screen doing something, that's second unit. <laughs> so mm-hmm. watch this again and try to try just mark it out. Right. Post-production began in late October of 96 and lasted for almost a year, concluding in August of 97. And this covered editing, music, and effects. We had two editors, Mark Goldblatt and uh, Caroline Ross, and they said that Verhoeven was very collaborative, allowing them to interpret his footage in their own way and even allowing them input during filming on how special effects may be staged. But the issue was Verhoeven was conservative with what he filmed and generally only captured what he wanted with no coverage whatsoever. So while they, they had like free rain they also didn't have many they didn't have a lot to work with yeah Yeah, exactly about half of the budget for starship troopers was dedicated to realizing the required 500 special effect shots in the film so um okay Tippett Studio was mainly responsible for producing effects related to the arachnids while Sony Pictures Imageworks was tasked with spaceship effects Davison wanted to use other studios because he um, knew that Sony was fucked, but um, it was made clear to him by studio executives that the film would not receive financing without using the in-house studio. So this caused problems. (laughs) (laughs) Sony's contributions made them fall months behind schedule and those effects that were completed. Again, it's just the fucking spaceship effects. Right. Were deemed insufficient by the filmmakers and a, quote-unquote highly placed employee of the production said that sony was not only poorly managed disorganized and rarely on set or involved with the production but they also were too busy developing effects for the science fiction film contact which they had more faith in which in their defense is a little bit fair considering one is like oh well this is more high profile it's more respectable it's oscar Beatty. i mean again i just i feel like the moment you say bugs Yeah. <laughs> like any anyone's gonna be like what like no i don't want to do that mm-hmm. but due to the high quantity of effects that needed to be completed many of the special effect shots were then reassigned from sony to other effects companies like industrial light and magic and boss film studios and visual concepts engineering and mass illusion so four hmm. <laughs> other studios were working on the effects for this film it's interesting because i find the ships to be fairly convincing like to the point where i would have accepted if you had told me that those were models I, I thought the exact same thing so fuck you sony but also okay so here's the thing that also is why this movie was released in november because it was supposed to come out in june and i wonder if that would have helped its box office prospects this is a very summer movie to me yes so okay so all of that Starship Troopers is reported to have a final budget that falls somewhere between 100 and $110 million. And y'all, this would never happen Mm-mm. today. <laughs> no, like, that's a lot of money nowadays. That is astronomical back then. So let's get some context in 1997. Again, let's see where the box office was, Joe. So by August of 1997, a record-breaking 10 films had earned over $100 million. Ah, that used to be the milestone, baby. Yeah, now it's like $300 million. Yeah. <laughs> the Lost World, Jurassic Park, and Men in Black both earned over $200 million. And Ooh, even so, mm-hmm. the success of these films was undermined by the growing cost of film production, with the average film costing $80 million to produce and a further $40 million to promote. So... The quantity of films competing for a finite audience also meant that even successful films were underperforming by 15 to 20% of the box office. 
E. That's a lot of money. Yep. Sony Pictures was also restructuring its businesses to focus on translating its films like Men in Black and Starship Troopers into media franchises that would extend their merchandising profitability long after the films left theaters. And so, uh, A, I get that, and it makes sense for Men in Black. I'm always mm-hmm. really confused when we're merchandising R-rated movies. It, yeah, it it does seem a little bit weird when you're basically saying the movie can only be seen by adults, but we want the kids to buy Happy Meals. But yeah. at the end of the day, financially, it makes more sense because things like toys, you can actually make so much more money off of ancillary markets and merchandising than you can just at box office. So it's like, it it's why we see this kind of mass proliferation of all of these other sort of forms of media, because at the end of the day, like the box office for the film is kind of a, a drop in the bucket. Yeah, uh, it's an investment, right? Like you know, you're putting $100 million in a movie that may make 50, but ideally mm-hmm. it'll become popular and people will buy toys. So I, exactly. I, it's just it's just so bizarre to me. So. The first trailer for this movie was released in November of 1996, a full year before the movie would come out. Ah, I remember those days. We used to love doing that. Oh, my God. And it was in front of Star Trek First Contact. Um, The second trailer played before Men in Black and Air Force One in the summer of 97. Smart choices, all of those. Yeah. So, I'm sorry. It was originally scheduled for release on July 2nd, 1997. That was replaced by Men in Black, and it was moved to July 25th. Well... Then it was moved out of that slot and replaced with Air Force One, and they moved it to September. Mm. <laughs> and then in September, they pushed it back again to November 7th. So yeah. I, I don't know what the trades were probably saying, but again, they're like, hey, y'all, this Paul Verhoeven $100 million bug movie has been pushed back five times. Right. Yeah. But again, it's probably to help finish the special effects. And also, to be fair, Men in Black Air Force One may be a bit more commercially viable. Right. And it's still airing the trailer in front of those other movies. So in a way, it's like, okay, well, we're still getting the word out there. It's just we keep delaying. Yeah. So the film was released on November 7th, 1997. And it did open in the number one spot, earning $22.1 million. Yeah, that's not good enough. And it was so funny. So uh, it was ahead of Bean, which was number two. Um, That was Bean's first week of wide release. It had been a limited release for two weeks prior. And... It was the film that kicked I Know What You Did Last Summer out of the number one spot, which it, it, a place it had spent there for three weeks. Mm-hmm. So this actually made it TriStar's third largest opening weekend ever behind Total Recall in 1990 and Terminator 2 in 1991. Uh, this is also interesting. So the New York Times did an experiment. They gave 1,000 tickets for Bean to young males as a test. And recorded that many of them then snuck into Starship Troopers. <laughs> Which is great in theory, except that that doesn't help the box office. Yeah. And so I actually do. I feel like we discussed a film recently where someone blamed the box office performance on. Oh, no, they bought tickets for this movie and went to go and, and went and snuck into ours instead. Mm-hmm. So it's theatrical run. It basically got a domestic haul of $54.8 million, making it the number 33 highest grossing film of the year. Internationally, it earned another $66 million so it had a worldwide box office of 121 million dollars against its again possibly 110 million dollar budget yeah not good so when looking at why it underperformed um, it could have been the overall critical reception uh which i'll get to in a minute but it's also a saturated market of blockbuster sci-fi and action films i mean like the same mm-hmm. year we not only did we have jurassic park lost world and men in black we had the fifth element and it was also released only a few weeks before all of these films titanic Mm -hmm. alien resurrection 
Flubber. I mean, we laugh, but Flubber made a shit ton of money. It did. Scream 2 and the latest James Bond film, Tomorrow Never Dies, all of which came out in like November, December of, of 1997. Right. So all of these movies, even if you listen to that list and thought, oh, well, I don't know that Flubber is competing for the same audience. The reality is, is all of those movies would at least be going after one of the quadrants, which is the highly desirable 18 to 34 year old male. Yep, exactly. Also, you know what? Uh, I bet you some kids bought tickets to Flubber and snuck into Starship Troopers. (laughs) 100%. It's what we did when we were making a lot of R rated films, but we had other films that were like a lower rating. It's what you did because we wanted to see the R-rated films, but they were checking. So, (laughs) well, and and here's the thing. So Verhoeven had to repeatedly explain to European journalists the context that Starship Troopers was using fascist imagery. Ironically, Um, Mm -hmm. he all. Oh, this is also from test screenings and just like word of mouth. But um, audiences were not happy about Dizzy dying instead of Carmen. Right. They (laughs) they didn't like that Carmen gave up uh, a love life to do her career. They thought that made her unlikable. Oh, my God. (laughs) And Verhoeven says we were trying to be good feminists and audiences hated that. (laughs) Yeah, we were in a different place in the mid to late 90s. But I will say this is the movie that made me love Dina Meyer. Mm -hmm. Like when she shows up and saw the reason that I get excited is because I'm like, yes, Starship Troopers. Before I ever saw Starship Troopers, I knew Dizzy died because I had a bunch of, you know, straight male friends who were like always talking about it. And they were like, oh, Dizzy, like they would get so excited about Dizzy. And so I knew I knew going in at some point Dizzy was going to die. (laughs) Right. I mean, admittedly, she's memorable to the target demographic because she does show her tits she does show her tits um we have lots of butts in this movie i mean the, i mean we don't get any dick but my god there's some man ass in this movie oh yeah like if this movie had been made even just a little bit later i'm pretty sure we would have seen full dong in that shower scene i know you can almost see jake Busey's if you look really 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 closely but it's hidden very strategically behind a piece of metal <laughs> yeah his his hair is a big no-go for me in this movie so i'm i'm gonna pass on that actually Uh, there's something so charming Uh, we'll get to when we talk about the military but um Mm -hmm. so yeah this film received generally negative reviews in its release i mean it was dismissed by critics and audiences alike cinema score we got a c plus from audiences rotten tomatoes so now we are looking fine like we are at a 67 percent of rotten tomatoes average score of 6.3 out of 10 and this is part of its you know reappraisal as people have realized over the years oh this is not (laughs) (laughs) pro-fascism it's actually meant to be funny exactly and then of course letterbox uses we got a 7.4 out of 10 so letterbox is on point there we go but again yeah many reviewers didn't interpret starship troopers as a satire believing many of its fascist themes were literal um some common critiques uh, we got a pro-fascist film made directed and written by nazis the film was spiritually and psychologically nazi and born of a nazi-like imagination huh It depicted the physical and mental tolls of war by glorifying the horrors of war, and it fetishized weaponry. I mean, yes, to that last one. Yes, but at the same time, the whole time I was like, 200 years in the future, we've accomplished space travel, and we still just have guns with bullets? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> oh, there's always there's always like a, a bankruptcy of creative vision when it comes to how we're going to do guns in the future. Like, if we're not even doing lasers when we're 200 years in the future, what are we doing? Which we have lasers in the in the, the boot camp. I know, but those are. I it's mean, like laser tag. It's laser tag. <laughs> <laughs> but on the flip side, um, those who recognized the satirical elements said that Starship Troopers walked a thin line between overblown melodrama and parody, mm-hmm. accompanied with Verhoeven's RoboCop-style news breaks. Uh, but yes. they thought that these ideas were often indistinguishable from the promotion of the fascist utopia it was satirizing. Ah, 
Salon even said that, like, even with good satire, it was self-defeatingly stupid to use it in a story that <laughs> wants its audience to care about its characters. And that, you know, the movie failed to replace Heinlein's themes with a worthwhile ideal. The LA Times said that Verhoeven had lost his touch with satire by failing to respect its audience's intelligence and make the world hmm. of Starship Troopers interesting or convincing. Huh. Okay. I do have more to say about the kind of the line that's walking with fascism and how its characters don't seem to know what text they're in. Mm -hmm. So I think that's an interesting conversation we can have. We will definitely have that. Um, others thought it was unsuccessful in transitioning from the teenage love story to the carnage of war, but that it remained watchable as a live action comic book. Um, whereas others said that unlike its contemporaries, which they named as Independence Day or Twister, mm -hmm. Starship Troopers benefited from a lack of pretense that the effects were less important than the, than emotions or pseudo sensitivity. So, hmm. I don't know. But yeah, so despite its initial negative reception, it has been reevaluated and is now considered one of the best science fiction films ever made. Analyses describe it among the most subversive and misunderstood Hollywood studio films ever made, undermined by critics and audiences who misinterpreted its anti-fascist satire as an endorsement of a fascist utopia. It is now described, as we have already pointed out, as obvious satire. It, does the term pose law mean anything to you? It sounds familiar, but I can't elaborate. So, you know, when someone like tweets something and people are like going off on them about it and it's like, no, but it's satire. It's a joke. It's it's basically Poe's law is it's something from Internet culture saying that without a clear indicator of the author's intent, every parody of extreme views can be mistaken by some readers for a sincere expression of the views being parodied. Okay. Yeah, they even though this film existed before that term came into existence, it is now considered an example of that term. Right. Yeah, because people didn't understand what Verhoeven was doing. They, as a result, misinterpreted it. And then that spirals. Yeah, we'll analyze more later. But I mean, there has been some influence like where people have been like, oh, well, this film was very prescient because of the its elements which came to reflect future events like September 11th terrorist attacks and the subsequent actions of the U.S. government and President George W. Bush to convince the American people to surrender certain liberties to enable mm. a war and defeat their enemies. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. And yeah, I, that's really kind of all. That's all I have. Um, <laughs> if you are interested in the sequels, uh, yeah, there are four. We've got 2004 Starship Troopers 2, which is the body horror film. 2008 is Starship Troopers 3, which is the return of Johnny Rico. And I think in that movie, we have a recast Carmen. So the Denise Richards character is in the film. Right. Okay. And then, yeah, the fourth film is we have a uh, Rico is in the movie, but like, oh, actually, I'm sorry. Rico, Carmen and Carl, the Neil Patrick Harris characters are all in this 2012 CGI film, mm -hmm. all voiced by different actors. Oh, OK. And then 2017 is a Mars film, which sees Casper Van Dien and, and Dina Meyer return as Rico and Dizzy, respectively. Wow. OK. <sighs> okay so <laughs> that is how starship troopers came to be wow <laughs> it's a lot yeah it, it is a lot so let before we waste any more time joe let's let's go through this film okay so we begin with a federation recruitment ad and then we transition from that into a report from a bug planet Kundathu, and this is where the mobile infantry or mi is launching an attack so it's basically like we join the action already in progress and it's this reporter like doing a, a kind of like on the ground like hey there's this big attack happening what's going on oops i'm in the middle of shit i have to say this propaganda video we start the film with mm -hmm. is so clearly p parodical is that how you, p p 
it's parody it is parody yeah. like we have a kid that is wearing a uniform and all the other soldiers are like yeah like doing like the big like <laughs> thumbs up thing it's like how how do you watch this and not be like oh yeah like that this is supposed to be funny i think it's just because people see so much of the imagery in real life things right like people have automatically seen exactly what Verhoeven's doing, but he's drawing directly from Nazi propaganda films, right? So mm-hmm. I think for some people, they just can't divorce the fact that it looks like he's replicating it, but that they don't understand the commentary. <sighs> okay. <laughs> I know, I know. It's Poe's Law, because they don't know what he's doing, so yeah. they just take it at face value. Well, and this goes into everything. We, I mean, what is something we've said since we started the podcast, where it's like, you know, intent doesn't matter once it leaves the creator. And that, right. uh, unfortunately, I have to stand by our words with that. And it's like, yeah, like, uh, is Verhoeven not doing a good enough job conveying his intent here? But to clarify, like, people did catch this, right? Like, you can read a lot of academic pieces and several of even, like, the the kind of salons, the Roger Eberts and that kind of stuff, like, mm-hmm. a bunch of regular critics will note that these, especially these sort of adverts, the FedNet pieces, mm-hmm. they're drawing from Frank Capra's Why We Fight uh, mm-hmm. videos and also obviously lenny riefenstahl's epic triumph of the will okay and we'll we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go okay okay so we're on clan dathu we've got this big attack sequence we're introduced to johnny rico but we don't really know who he is at the time and we just get to see him get wounded and then we flash back one year to (laughs) but uh, in media res Mm -hmm. are you okay with this opening I'm okay with it because we don't know who any of these people are. Like, if we had to spend a bunch of time to introduce it and then be like, oh, and now let's go back. Like, this is very brief. I think also the fact that Casper Van Dien is in there. Like, honestly, I think the first time I saw this, I didn't realize that was Rico in this opening scene. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. you just think, oh, okay, we're following this battle. And then you see somebody get their leg punctured. And then we go back a year. And you're like, oh, okay. I'm sure we'll bleed up to this. It'll be fine. We also do get a good taste of the bugs here. And I Mm -hmm. I mean, like, I'm just going to say, I think that these bugs do look really fucking good. I think they look great. I especially like the design of them, right? Like the they look like mechanical instrument that we see on construction sites, so they're not so alien that they're not recognizable to like human eyes. Yeah. But at the same time, like these are not men in suits, and I really appreciate that these are distinctly insectoid and they, you know, they they play there's almost an activation of like our disgust with them because mm-hmm. they look so gross in terms of bug like quality. Oh yeah, there's a scene like when it, you get one shot of one of their eyes when they're like trying to like do target practice on it, and it's just like mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you do want to step on these things because they're like bugs. <laughs> so we flash back to the Latin paradise of Buenos Aires, <laughs> where these thirty-five-year-old teenagers. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we are pulling from Beverly TV. Hills 90210 and so on. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> I mean, basically, that's what we were doing back in the 90s. We were casting people who were like 10 years too old to play teenagers. Yeah, I didn't check the others, but uh, Casper Van Dien was definitely 29 when this came out. Oh, God. Yeah. And, you know, he, he's he got like a delicious body in this movie. Like, it is completely not realistic teenage goals in terms of body positivity. Do you think he's good in this I do, actually. Yeah, like, I don't 
think his reign, like him and Denise Richards, I find if they go to the lane that they are good at, they will be good in that role. And it's when you try to sort of push them out of that, that maybe they wobble a little bit. <laughs> There's a, one of Denise Richards' tapes that she sends to him and she's like looking out at the, the Mars or Earth or something. Oh my God. And it looks like a dating tape that you would be like, yes, lowered expectations. But I feel like she didn't know what she was looking at because she's like looking at it and she looks and she goes, wow, isn't it beautiful? It's like, isn't bitch, you don't know beautiful? what you're looking at. <laughs> <laughs> i'm looking at a green screen <laughs> what is this is this a moon is it a sun is it a planet it's so a tennis ball pretty. it's a tennis ball <laughs> okay so these uh are all these are all students in mr Rajchak's class he's played by the one and only michael ironside uh. who is just like sheer fucking perfection in this movie i, I love this guy i am someone i hate war settings i hate military settings i hate the the culture of the military mm-hmm. so in theory i should hate this character i love this character well it's because he's a super charming but he's also not exactly what you would expect this character to be because it it's really important that we're introduced like we're literally after this war scene which is like hey boys stay tuned we've got lots of this shit coming for you we dial it back so that we can introduce the characters which is a smart thing to do to get us on the side Mm -hmm. and this class is literally like hey this is what the movie is that you're going to watch we're talking about the difference between being a citizen and a civilian and right away you can you can feel the tension in the movie about okay so if i want certain rights and privileges i have to step up and quote unquote do my part Mm -hmm. and as a result, citizenship guarantees privilege, but it also paints this idea that if you're not stepping up to fight, then you don't deserve these kinds of things. So it's utopian in some measures, but it's also very classes in others, well, right? But it's also like, okay, so you have to join the Federation, join the fight, but also it's like based on your intelligence level. So if you don't, if you're not a good test taker, you're mm-hmm. going to be in the mobile infantry. If you are a good and test taker. fucking slaughtered. Oh, yeah. absolutely. And so honestly, when his parents are like, don't do that, I'm like, yeah, don't fucking do that. Like, don't do it. Be, be a civilian. It's fine. I don't need to vote. <laughs> well, except that he has political aspirations. He wants to be rich. Like, if you want to go to Harvard, you have to become a citizen. Well, no, I don't think so, though, because his dad says you're going to Harvard instead of going into the Federation. Mm, but later on, we learn that, like, there's another character who also wanted to go to college. And if you can't afford it, ah. then you have to be a citizen. The difference is that Rico is fucking rich. That, and that's the thing, though. So, again, the parents are so against him bec- uh, becoming a, a citizen, but, are, but they're civilians, but they're rich. They're super rich. I need to know how they got rich. <laughs> because, like, <laughs> I always look at his dad and I'm like, you look like a tech mogul. I'm assuming that you just like did a patent of something. <laughs> Based on the world building that we have in this movie, I would assume that it would be hard to become rich if you were not a citizen. I mean, mm-hmm. even the redheaded chick later, she's like, oh, I joined because I want to have a, f- a baby. And yes. it's easier to get a license if you're a citizen. Like you have to have mm-hmm. a license to have a baby. <laughs> yeah, it's called eugenics. <laughs> So, yeah, I wish there was a bit more... I guess I don't need it. You want the world building, right? Like, you want to understand how this society came about. But the film, it, it gives us taste, like, tasters of that. But it, it doesn't really flesh out how you would operate. Like, really, there's only one real route. That's what this movie advocates yes. for. Like, you have to go into the Federation. Yes. And it's so funny because, again, I, I hadn't seen this movie in at least 10 years, probably longer. And I definitely didn't pick up on all 
most of this stuff when I was oh, sure. in middle school or high school. And so watching this, I was like, oh, shit, like, we, mm-hmm. we really do have, like, a world here. <laughs> yeah, we absolutely do. It's just that it's not spoon feeding us, which is a weird thing to say when you look at the way people treat this film. Like, oh, it's a cotton candy monstrosity that's intended, you know, just to fetishize boys in the military. And you're like, no, like... Y- it bothers me when people dismiss this movie as stupid because I don't think it's stupid. No, I, I agree. I mean, look, even Paul Verhoeven described the, the concept of this movie as stupid, mm-hmm. but that's why he's injecting all this stuff <laughs> into it to make it not stupid. Yeah, like to me, the stupid is the sweetness that allows you to sneak the medicine in. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's so funny because imagine all the right-winger like teen boys who would go to see this because ooh bugs die and they're slowly being snuck this message of anti-fascism exactly well presuming that they're smart enough to pick up on it which well and that's the other thing too right you have to have like a modicum of intelligence apparently to pick up (laughs) on the satire (laughs) well okay so let me bring in a sort of gentle counterpoint to why maybe some people don't pick this up okay Okay, so I'm going to draw from a chapter in a book called Hollywood Aesthetic, Pleasure in American Cinema. It's written by Todd Berlinger, and the chapter is Genre and Ideology in Starship Troopers. And specifically thinking about the Michael Ironside Rad Shuck character, he says, No straightforward ideological proposition can make sense of the classroom scene because genre cues point in two opposing directions. So Berlinger's main thesis in this entire chapter is that audiences are confused because the film seems to be doing two different things all the time. Mm. So specifically about this character... This classroom scene makes Razchek look alternatively like a liberal educator or that he's speaking fascist ideologue. So he's an entitled dictator who's spouting this fascist propaganda, but he's also like, no, let's have a debate about it. Like he actively wants them to talk it through with him. So in this way, Starship Troopers is derailing efforts to follow its ideological position and it's making it difficult for audiences to identify the film's meaning. So we're looking at this for genre clues and we're getting confused by this guy who's saying like, no, so war is really the most important thing. Like conflict, hard conflict has settled more disputes than anything else in the world. But he's also coming off like he's fucking an open-minded liberal educator. Like, let's have a public debate about it in the class. So it's confusing for us as an audience. Like, is he fascist or is he open-minded? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the media literacy, everyone. <laughs> sure, when you boil it down. Yeah. <laughs> so within this class, we meet Rico's admirer, Diz, or Dizzy, played by Dina Meyer, as well as his wannabe pilot girlfriend, Carmen, played by Denise Richards. And she is obviously like, like they're dating, but she's already aloof. So you can get a sense of like, yeah. Diz is too into Rico. And Carmen is like, you're fun. And I like to fuck you. But I've also got these big plans. It, it, I mean, and here's the thing, though. Like, I don't fault Carmen for picking her career over her romance. But she no. is kind of a bitch for leading it. I mean... It's a thing where I, I don't really think she knows she's leading him on, um, mm. but she I think she's checked out without realizing she's checked out. Right. Like the thing to do would have been at this graduation dance when they're all going off to decide like what the future holds for them. She should have been like, you know what? I really want to be pilot. And that means career, which means 
don't follow me into the Federation. But it's very high school, right? Like, oh, we go to college. Oh, we're going so to have a long-distance relationship. It's going to be fine. No, I'm really sorry. That doesn't work 99% of the time. Well, and even this pledge that she makes with Rico, but also Carl, the Neil Patrick Harris character, mm-hmm. you know, they they do this thing where they're like, let's say we're always going to be friends. And you're just like, oh, Jesus, that is so fucking high school. Like, the minute yeah. you turn your backs on each other, you've already forgotten about this friendship because it's not real. <laughs> we should also point out that we have a delicious cameo from Golden Girl Rue McClanahan as this biology teacher. So yes. as Carmen is trying not to vomit and Diz is like making fun of her and Rico is completely oblivious to everything that's happening. Yes, we have a Golden Girl who's like, these are the perfect specimens. And she looks like a Nazi doctor. Yes. Oh my I, I didn't recognize her when I was watching the film until like, I, I was looking at my shit. I was like, oh, shit, that was mm-hmm. Rue McClanahan. But it, it's that like um, that hairstyle she has, like that slicked yes. up hair. It's quite severe. Yeah. Severe is a great word. <laughs> she basically looks like the Nana from Ready or Not. Yes, yes, yes. That's it. That's it. <laughs> um, OK, so we're also getting a sense of like what their carefree lives are like before they join up to go and get murdered on foreign alien planets. Uh, so we're playing basically what looks like X game fantasy football. And this is our introduction to Xander, who is played by Patrick Muldoon, who of course is like a soap star. So he has perfect hair and he's gorgeous. I, I was actually a little confused. So is he supposed to be the same age as them? Yes. Okay. So <laughs> uh, he doesn't look at obviously. No, he doesn't. But here's the thing though. How is he Denise Richards's superior when she's going through flight training? Oh, uh, actually, you know what? Maybe he is like a year or two older because but, when he's trying to woo her at the dance, she's like, wait, you're already in fleet. That's what I want to do. Okay. But then why is this high school team playing against a team right. of not high school? What You know what? It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we, we also hear in this scene that like, so Dizzy actually was going to go and play like professional league in this because she's the captain of this team. And she goes, and, she goes for Rico. Yeah. <sighs> Well, just like folks do do not follow your high school sweetheart into bad decision making. It didn't work for Felicity and it would not work for you. <laughs> and it's obviously not the same in our world. But like, you know, I mean, a, a problem I'm going to say with the United States military is that, again, they entice people because you get money out of it. Right. The problem is, much like in this movie, and like, let's say how it was before 9-11, mm-hmm. you go and we're not in a war and you're thinking, oh, we're probably never going to go to war. Right. And then you go to war. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's a problem and honestly it's a problem i have with the american government how they how they not, advertise it yeah, yeah. It's, it's not fetishization it's 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 glorification they glorify it and it's like you know playing to people's patriotic needs and whatever and it's mm-hmm. it's something that me i mean look i'm not super patriotic i've i've never been one for school spirit at the same time like i've just okay. never been that way so i truly don't understand the need to go serve mm-hmm. your country and i realize that makes me very unpatriotic and i apologize if you are but I just I, I've never understood this need to go to the war. I respect everyone that does. I have a great respect for them. And I thank you for all your service. And but oh, my, I, I couldn't do it. I could not do it. Well, to me, it's a little bit. This is going to sound very dismissive. And I apologize also to anybody who has served. But to me, there is that element of almost media literacy where you have to be careful about what you're signing up for. So, you know, in certain people's cases, like, I'll be frank, I'll lay the cards on the table. For people who are poor, people who are black, people who are Latino, 
you don't have the same options because fucking society sucks and this is what we have done Mm -hmm. so the government and the military preys on that by saying well you can go above your station yes we will waive all these fees you know all you have to do is give us a couple of years of dedicated service which is literally what we see in this movie right they take the pledge and it's for two years and the idea is like oh well how bad could it be like maybe you'll end up in games in theory and get to wear a nazi trench coat or maybe you get to fly that big plane the roger young But the more likely situation is that you are the Rico and you are lining up to be bulldozed on the battlefield. Yeah, and at least it makes it because I mean we don't have a lot of people of color in this movie, and if we do, they no. die. But I think that's strategic. Well, yeah, but that's what Verhoeven was saying. Like, no, mm-hmm. I wanted like my German look. Like, I wanted that look. Yes. So that's why we don't really get that kind of. And also, it's 1997. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I guess it's, for me, it's always been like a hey, if you join, if you enlist, that means you were taking a job that where there is a chance that you will die, and I right. don't want a job where there is a chance I'm going to die while on the job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And thinking about the casting and like the way that these characters get played as kind of these naive idealistic idiots who are incredibly patriotic but also like gung-ho do my part an article by florentine stairslack called our future our past fascism postmodernism and starship troopers in (laughs) modernism slash modernity which is apparently an academic journal so florentine writes a little bit about how verhoeven has publicly spoken on this and apparently he he's pretty candid on the audio commentary on a lot of the discs of this Mm -hmm. but yeah he says he was specifically looking for these actors to fit the proto-fascist mold and he chose appearance over acting ability as you've already said Mm -hmm. but he wanted to plant this ironic and subversive trend into the film where none of the protagonists have strong personalities but on the contrary they are willingly and uncritically absorbed into the fascist ideology of their society and like Mm. folks that is where the satire is in part it's like these kids who are so patriotic that they just sign up without even thinking about how they have been totally brainwashed by their own government into doing these horrendous things like basically it's sign up so that you can vote maybe have babies but also please go to an off-world and commit genocide yeah yep 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 and because that's the thing too is like we we know that the bugs keep sending meteors to earth and like we uh, yes. the, the humans have to keep destroying them before they hit earth blah 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 but we don't know why like mm-hmm. who started this war and i would wager that it was us well there is in one of the fednet pieces there's this explanation which is again like so horribly offensive they blame a mormon outpost <gasps> yes <laughs> Or they're the, like, mm, they went into the arachnid no quarantine zone or like the, the basically the off limits part of space where the arachnids are. And it was like, well, these fucking Mormons ruined it for all of us. Um, no, I have the quote. Mormon extremists <laughs> di- <laughs> disregarded federal warnings and established. Oh, I love this. Established Port Joe Smith, as in Joseph Smith. <laughs> oh, my God. Inside the arachnid quarantine zone. Too late. They realized that Dantana had already been chosen by other colonists the arachnids Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) would you like to know more would you like to know more (laughs) oh boy yeah 
So our our lovable dum-dums all end up signing up for this. Carmen does well because she has good math scores. Carl does well because he has psychic abilities. Joe, I have seen this movie several times, and I never picked up on the fact that Carl actually had psychic abilities. Uh, to the point where at the end when he's feeling the bug brain, he's like, it's mm-hmm. afraid. It's like, no, sh- I could have told you that. <laughs> well he is surrounded by armed people and he's in a giant net so yes but trace how did you miss it he tells cyrano the ferret to go bug mom and so because he's doing that game with rico where he's trying to help rico develop his psychic abilities i guess Mm -hmm. and i just thought it was a fun game the kids played in the future kids play fun psychic games <laughs> it's how we get this and scanners because no because in even the very very first evil dead the girls are dead where they're trying to flip the cards and they're trying to like you know figure mm-hmm. out if, they, if they're psychic or not it's, like, oh, it's just something they're doing for fun but no he he is literally meant to be a psychic in this movie <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he's no peter vankman this isn't ghostbusters oh my god <laughs> all right so our kids all sign up and they ship off rico gets disowned by his parents christopher curry and lenore kasdorf those are the actors who play his parents and yes they're they're very rich and they're like you're throwing your life away and he's like no i'm not i'm gonna go be with carmen and it's like carmen heard you say i love you and literally fucked off five seconds later without <laughs> saying that. she's just not that into you I mean, also, we, I, I, we've had Dizzy here, but even at that prom, like, Dizzy is, like, on the fucking hunt for him. Like, she sees... Oh, my God. She is so cock-hungry. It is delicious. But, like, she, she sees Carmen, and she, like, literally does that thing where she hides her head behind her mm-hmm. hand. And as mm-hmm. soon as she walks away, she goes up and pounces. I was like, look, I know we're making a feminist statement here, but um, Dizzy's a bit of a predator. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, but... She's also a go-getter. She she goes after what she wants, Trace. Which in this case is a taken man. But you know what? That's fine. <sighs> it's more like, girl, Rico's not that great. Like, I know. You could do better. <laughs> go, go after uh, Xander. <laughs> right? He's got much better hair. Very much so. <laughs> so in these sequences where we do see the Federation with their like slick commercials and their glorifying military, that kind of stuff. So a lot of particularly the shots where like the sky marshals are talking about their policy Mm. those are literally shot for shot replicas of triumph of the will like when hitler is doing his address okay okay so again if you're if you're not unpacking it if you're not thinking about this critically and you're just being like wait that looks exactly like a Hitler Nazi address. Yeah. What are we doing in this movie? But I guess even all the acting in, in these propaganda videos is so over the top. So over the top. Like yeah. none of it. Again, it's, I, I, I guess when you're like, okay, that versus the movie itself, like there's a disconnect there. Mm-hmm. But I can't imagine anyone watching this, this propaganda videos and be like, yeah, this is, this is being genuine with its messaging. <laughs> well, I mean, we say this, but even on U.S. soil... In the Second World War, when we were doing these kinds of newsreels before, like, features and B-movies, like, it was exactly like this. It was about doing your part for the war effort, like, turn in valuable medals and, like, start penny-pinching so that you can make, like, bigger donations to help the boys and that kind of stuff. So, like, Mm -hmm. we did this kind of shit during war times. 
before basically before the internet the internet complicates these things right that's how we get the rise of fake news and facebook messaging and that kind of stuff yeah so let's move the action to our infantry boot camp because we basically leave carmen and carl we touch base with them sporadically but this is very much rico's movie yeah yeah i mean but yeah yeah and he has you know a lot of women that want him. Well, I'm sorry, one woman that wants him, one that does not want him. <laughs> True. Yes. And and many friends who support him. So at infantry camp, we're introduced to Sergeant Zim, who is played by Clancy Brown. <laughs> Wait, when does, does he, he, we don't see him die in this movie, do we? No, he's the one who captures the brain bug. Uh, okay, right, right. Sorry. Because uh, I was like, I feel like, I feel like we don't see him once we move over back into the uh, Michael Ironside portion of the film. Uh, no he he's sort of off doing that other side agenda but also because at one point he's told by dean norris of breaking bad that he needs to bump his ass up a rank if he wants to see action right because he's he's basically just a drill instructor like that's his job Mm. so he doesn't get to see active deployment until the end of the movie i mean shit you know what I, i would want that job over the ones that are actually going out there fighting the bugs yeah, but then you're basically just grooming these kids, like training them so that you can send them off to be murdered. I mean, I'd rather send them off than me. I mean, fair. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, this is basically every war movie that you've ever seen. We're going through basic boot camp. We're meeting other characters. So we are introduced to things that will play a role in the film to come, like Washout Lane. We're introduced to big and stupid Breckenridge, who is played by Erica Bruscotter. He's the guy who gets his arm broken because he thinks that because he's big, he can take on them. <laughs> he's also got a perfect ass. Sure. Okay. <laughs> you like them corn fed, huh? <laughs> um, I just like, it's like the short stocky guys, but then the ass, that just like stretches out about two feet outside their body. Like that, like that's what he has. <laughs> I mean, this isn't the short guy. This is the tall guy who gets his head blown off. Later. Oh, shit. Never mind. Ignore me. We also see that Dizzy has transferred in and, you know, she immediately tries to make a big impression by taking on Zim and it sort of works. He beats the shit out of her, but everybody else is super impressed except Rico, who knows exactly why she's there. And I will say I use the line, what's your malfunction, Rico, all the time in everyday life. (laughs) She is a stage five clinger. She's very clingy. Yes. (laughs) She she transferred over there just so Mm -hmm. she could be in the same group as Rico because she wants to fuck. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) But you know what? Good for her. Good for her. I mean, she's after it. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So other people we meet. We have Smart Alec Ace, played by Jake Busey. We have Dejana D, who is played by Tammy Adrian George. She is uh, basically our black recruit. And she's going to go home very soon. This is true. Yep. We have uh, Kitten, who is the writer, who I think is the one you're talking about with the good ass, played by Matt Levin. Probably, yeah. We have Sexus Shizumi, played by Anthony Rivera. No, Rivera. Sorry for the mispronunciation there. And yeah, so other details about like why people would do this, right? So everybody's kind of there for a different reason, but it's very clear that if you want to do anything in the society, you have to go through this process. Okay, but again, not this specific one. This is only for people who didn't test well. Yeah, more or less. (laughs) But it, it seems like you have to test 
particularly well in certain areas to get out of this because like none of these people seem incredibly stupid they're just kind of average no it's where we're talking about street smarts versus book smarts and again right uh, carmen said math is the first thing they look at so you have yeah. to be good at math if you want to be not uh, in the infantry right which to me makes sense in her line of work where, you know, you need to know how many meters your spaceship is away from blowing up when you're pulling out of the dock. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, I guess maybe you only need to be able to count bullets if you're in the MI. I mean, it's like physics or calculus or something Ugh. like blah. Sp- space travel, you know, blah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway so we get a nice juxtaposition between what rico's life is like and carmen's where yeah she's like racing her friend cadet stack lumbriser who is played in a blink and you miss it cameo ish performance by amy smart uh i know i saw her and i was like oh good she's not coming well i'm sorry she does come back later for one scene in the last five minutes of this movie yeah Thankfully, we do get more of Captain Deladier, who's played by Brenda Strong, who I really like in this movie. Oh, I, I do, too. And actually, so here's the funny thing. She's in the second movie playing a different character. Oh. Oh, okay. That's I great. know. Um, everyone, if you don't know who Brenda Strong is, you should go watch Desperate Housewives. Um, yeah. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, Xander is also there uh, because he is the assistant instructor. So the, the thing is, is that you called dizzy a stage five clinger and but the reality is so is xander no i know and so they are equally horrible at this um <laughs> <laughs> they're bad 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 but i uh so yeah uh, i am not sexist so i'm going to say they're equally bad there we go yeah just just don't behave this way there's a way to flirt with someone without literally uprooting your entire life <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, so we we follow their sort of respective careers, right? So Rico becomes a squad leader because Dizzy feeds him a play that they used to run on their fantasy football thing. I know it's not fantasy football, but we're just no, I know go with I, it. it's like foosball, but like in Kinda. space, like but like football. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So he gets promoted and then he gets the message from Carmen that she's breaking up because she's going to go career. And then his life starts to fall apart because we have this accident where Breckenridge gets killed during a live ammo sequence. And he ends up getting administrative punishment, which is 10 lashes. So I'm really sorry because we did skip one. What I think is a very important scene. It is the nude shower scene oh yes yes so apparently this caused a big to-do when it came out um Mm -hmm. people were really focusing on the co-ed nature of this shower yes and not what the kids are saying (laughs) no (laughs) so okay just for backstory though for the production so yeah it was filmed on set at sony pictures lot involved about 15 members of the cast and verhoven had them gather around him clothed before clearing the set of all crew but himself and his cinematographer vacano this is a famous story, so if you heard this, I apologize. But he told the cast to undress at their own pace. But although some of the cast admitted to being nervous, they all undressed fairly quickly, but requested that Verhoeven and Vicano also be nude if they were going uh, to do yes. it. <laughs> and they agreed. So Verhoeven and his cinematographer shot this scene in the nude with all these people. And I love that. 
Mm-hmm. But again, this scene serves narrative purpose. You, yes. In this scene, you find out why all of these kids joined the infantry. Mm-hmm. And again, you're also learning more about like, oh, like what rights do you not have if you don't join the Federation? You know? So yes. like with that redheaded lady, she she might not be able to have a baby if she doesn't do this. And unfortunately for her, she will die. I mean, that's how they get you, right? Is they make you these promises that you otherwise could never have the life you want to live. So you have to sign up. And sure, you get the perks of a co-ed shower, which in this world, as we said, it's it's kind of vaguely utopian in certain regards. So like none of these people seem to care that they're in a co-ed shower and they can like look at each other's boobas. Like it's not a big deal for them. Verhoeven's intent here. The point of the scene is since all the characters are fascists and they're brainwashed to only care about that, they have mm-hmm. no libido and only talk about their careers in combat, even when they're all in a naked room together. Right. Yeah. Which I think is why Dizzy and Xander sort of stand out a little bit more because their sexual overtness is so over the top because everybody else kind of seems neutered. And that's what gets them killed. See, kids, you need to have a sex life. <laughs> but again, um, no, that's the fascism. See, you, you have to think about your country, not your genitals. Otherwise, right. you will die. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that mean girls coach it's like don't have sex you you will get aids and you will die <laughs> you will get cancer and die. you will get pregnant and die <laughs> God. terrible all of these things terrible <sighs> okay yeah so we see scenes of carmen climbing the ranks uh she and xander make a good team okay xander take it down a couple notches uh and then this is when buenos aires gets destroyed so we we really kick the plot in and by plot i mean the kind of like genocidal element of this plot where it's like okay the bugs we remember them from this opening scene but apart from the biology sequence where they were just guts or these fednet videos where you know we we see footage but it feels artificial or doctored here it's like, okay, no, they pose a real threat because they just threw, like, a fucking meteor at Earth. Okay, I know it's, like, suspension of disbelief, like, whatever future space shit, but it's a thing where it's, like, they're flying this giant-ass ship, you know, mm-hmm. in space. Yes. And they're like, ooh, something's coming. It might be an asteroid. And then all of a sudden mm-hmm. the asteroid's right there. And I was like, you have all of space. <laughs> <laughs> black hole it opens up right in front of them or something i don't know all you have to do is move (laughs) (laughs) just can't uh but you know it's okay because carmen is apparently an expert pilot and she only destroys part of the ship when this asteroid um just comes into them sure yeah all we lose are the communications that could have saved buenos aires so Mm. oops we can't let them know there's a giant peanut coming at them what i do love here though is like so again once this asteroid hits and you know we're seeing like the death toll the wounded toll whatever Mm -hmm. no one is upset about going to war even in the infantry they're so excited to do something for their and again the thought that they might die never Mm -hmm. even crosses their mind or they don't care because, again, the thought of dying for your country is honorable and therefore that's fine. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I'm actually going to draw on another source, Brian E. Krim, from a piece called The Intergalactic Final Solution, Nazism and Genocide in Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers, to speak to that. Because one of the things that he talks about is after this attack on Buenos Aires, the Federation embarks on this war of annihilation, and they're using the rhetoric of racial survival. So if you think about it, what we get in that FedNet piece is like that kind of 
transient homeless man being like, the only good bug is a dead bug. <laughs> and to bring back Berliner, he says, as an action war film, Starship Troopers encourages us to cheer violence against this vicious enemy. But if you think about it as a satire, it's undermining this endeavor because it's stereotyping our heroes as xenophobic extremists. So the the fact is, is that it it's playing it both ways, right? Like in one hand, it's a war movie. Like, well, let's watch these kids go to war. It's part of Rico's story. Like, it's actually based on a very popular German storytelling thing where it's like a boy goes off to war and learns who he really is. Mm-hmm. Yay, fascism, Nazism, and so yeah. on. Mm-hmm. But also, it's encouraging us by proxy of these protagonists to to cheer for the complete destruction of another species that we don't fully understand, right? So as you said, it's like, what are we doing? We're going to war. We're so fucking excited about going to war. Oh my god, that was the first part of the trailer where it's like Rico writing. It's like, what? Are, what's going on? War! <laughs> We're going to war! <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, also, I mean, like, I mean, I'm sure we'll get to it later, but there's a lot of hubris here because, again, these people think that these bugs are stupid. Mm-hmm. It's like that guy says, the, the idea of a bug that thinks is offensive. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. So to bring in Krim again, so genocidal regimes define the targeted race or ethnicity as both subhuman and dangerous. Mm -hmm. So the sheer monstrosity of these arachnids, the fact that they have dared to attack us when they are like so puny, so inconsequential, so disgusting. Mm -hmm. Basically, the movie paints them as this this enemy race that is simultaneously dangerous, but also inferior. And that's literally what the Nazis did when they talked about the so-called Jewish problem. And also when we think about how they treat communists and that kind of stuff and queers. Well, and then I guess that's what we'll talk about the end of the movie. Because again, the end of the movie is, uh, you know, a happy quote-unquote ending. <laughs> right. Yes, where we have figured out the enemy and now we know how to destroy them. And the propaganda is they'll keep fighting and they'll win. Yeah. So again, it's like you can kind of understand why if some people weren't critically dissecting us because they just go in thinking it's a big, fun, stupid war movie. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it's like, wait, I'm cheering for these kids who are brainwashed to go and eliminate a complete alien race that we don't understand. And we're using like racially coded language. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've already passed it. I do love the part of the propaganda video when it's the kids at the school that are stepping on bugs and the teacher is behind them going, wee! (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. oh yeah no i love the fed net pieces to me those are the most extreme example of how satirical the film is like i agree with you i think they're so over the top and like the acting in them is often very broad like quite a bit yeah. larger than what we're seeing normally but for me i'm just like oh man like this really hits you in the dick if you're <laughs> like ah what are we doing here yes <laughs> Okay, yeah. So we have this address by Sky Marshall Deans. I love, I love the term Sky Marshall. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Sure. Sky Captain of the World of Tomorrow. Which, yes, is doing the exact same thing in terms of fetishizing the military and also right down to the costuming. So all the times that you're seeing, like, the trench coats and the eagles mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff, like, that's all Nazi propaganda. Uh, there we go. Yes. Okay. So this is where the the aliens are doing their their plasma light, and don't worry about it. I do love. <laughs> it's fine when Brenda Strong is like, it's just random light patterns. Don't worry about it. It's destroying the entire fleet. Like, we made a mistake. <laughs> yeah, that is because aren't they saying it's fine? Like when ships are being destroyed. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. It's like, hmm, that's a little strange. Oh, that ship just broken half. Um, and then we mind. get down to the planet, and it's fucking giant ass bugs farting blue balls out into the sky. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So this is the attack on planet Klendathu, and it goes horribly fucking awry because mm. these aliens knew that they were coming, hence the blue butts, and hence this, like, a very well staged attack. So we lose a hundred thousand people in one hour. Mm. And if you know your military history, this is basically a replica of Dunkirk. Uh, okay, there we go. I haven't seen Dunkirk and I don't know my military history. So thank you for that. <laughs> basically, it was a slaughter where people landed and just were immediately brutally killed. God. I mean, the, the, the Shijumi is the first one. He gets his leg ripped off and he is just yes. thrown around before being thrown <laughs> away. And then all these bugs just massacre him. <laughs> Yep, we also lose Katrina, who is our redhead, played yeah. by Blake Lindsley. Uh, she just gets dragged away, and that becomes important, but at this moment, we don't understand why. We don't know that the bugs typically just kill everybody. Because they're taking her to the brain, right? Correct. Oh, yes. ooh, ooh, God, okay. Kitten gets sliced in half, and then Rico gets impaled in the leg. Now we're caught up with the in media res opening. I will say that the fact that his femoral artery is not hit is a mm-hmm. little surprising to me, but okay. It's bullshit, because that that arachnid leg <laughs> piercer thing is ginormous. Yeah, I mean, when we see the, the, the machine stitching it up later, it's like, okay, come on, mm-hmm. like, it, no. <laughs> also this future tech can fix this mm-hmm. leg wound but you still have guns with bullets yeah, yeah. <laughs> i will prioritize not... certain things and not others i will not <laughs> stop harping on the bullet thing it is stupid <laughs> yeah so rico has been saved but he has been technically logged as killed in action so carmen thinks that he is dead oh, very sad Me. Um, Sky Marshal Deans resigns, and the other line that I always say from this movie is, We can ill afford another Klandathu. <laughs> Brian is like, Why do you say this? <laughs> yes, and then we get the, the very funny part about the man, the scientist, finding the idea of a brain bug or smart bug offensive. <laughs> Uh, okay, so we cut back to Carmen. The Roger Young has taken some hits. We've got a couple of black eyes and bandages, but mostly they're okay. The fleet, not looking so great. Mm-hmm. And yes, Planet K has basically just been a complete disaster. So we have learned a valuable lesson. Uh, sure. <laughs> So we move the action over to the Roughnecks. This is when we are reintroduced to Rashchek, who is no longer a teacher. He's also lost at least one other limb. So he's now fully cyborg. And the new plan from the Sky Marshal is they're not going to go after Klandathu, which is the alien home planet. They're going to go after the outer rim. So they're going to clean up the surrounding planets and then they'll focus their attention back. P.S. This is actually a specific military tactic that the Americans did employ. I can't remember which one it was. I think it might have been the Gulf War. Mm. But uh, basically, this is like you don't go after the main target. You sweep the surrounding areas and sort of eliminate the bases of support. Gulf War would have made sense if only because of the time period. Right. But um, I-, I didn't get to say this earlier, but I will say, though, so, right, sorry, despite my, my aversion to all this like boot camp type shit, mm-hmm. I actually genuinely like all of the 
Busey's, even Jake oh, Busey. Yeah. But I like all mm-hmm. these side characters. Like, again, Shijumi, I was like, oh, he's cool. Dead. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I, I, I actually genuinely liked watching them bond, and I thought they were all really compelling characters. Which is surprising, because we don't spend a ton of time with any of them. It's it's why that co-ed shower scene is so important. It's giving us information about what it means to be a citizen, mm-hmm. but it's also valuable insight about these are not just bodies. So when they do die... It hurts because we're like, oh, that's the girl who just wanted to have a baby. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And I guess it's just their their camaraderie is just, I mean, again, outside of the reason for their camaraderie, like, Mm -hmm. you know, their camaraderie, I find find very appealing. Yeah, like when Rico's trying to make that video for Carmen and they interrupt him so that they can play the violin and like moon the camera, you're just like, this is stupid, but these people feel real. No, I'm actually inclined to agree. Okay, so we move the action to Planet X and this is where Rico single-handedly takes out what looks to be like a giant beetle. He throws a grenade into its back and it blows up real good and he gets a promotion so he's now corporal and he makes dizzy his squad leader so that he can fuck her yeah pretty much uh, fun fact about this uh during the tanker bug moment when he does the grenade um the movement kept slamming him into the shell as he was held Ooh. in place with ropes chipping one of his teeth and bruising his ribs over the three and a half days it took to film this scene yikes he refused to mention this to anyone because it would have interrupted filming more so than the weather already had <laughs> <laughs> we can ill afford another 1.5 million dollar delay so good for you mr van Dien. um but you know report that next time yeah i mean like there's safety on sets for a reason yeah. <laughs> uh, okay so they have a brief sexual interlude she tells him she loves him and he doesn't respond so oh <gasps> He's pulling the same game that Carmen played with him. Yeah. Also, do you love that the uh, futuristic violins are just neon green? Mm-hmm. And translucent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and translucent, yeah. <laughs> very important, very important. So then after this, we ship out to Planet P, and this is where Rico gets promoted again. We go to Whiskey Outpost, and this is where we start to learn that the bugs are a little bit maybe smarter than we gave them credit for, so... All of these troopers are missing their brains, oh, this, and this we learn that scene. this is a big trap. The the moment they look over like the barrier, and you just see this mm-hmm. swarm of bugs coming, yeah. is terrifying. Yeah, and also I love the decapitations we get as these flying bugs come in. It is so cool. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, because we're introducing a couple of different types of bugs here. This to me feels very western, right? Like we have to protect the fort against marauding. You know, we would normally say, like, savages if this was a John Ford or a John Wayne movie. It's so funny that you say uh, Marauders because uh, did, did you know that the subtitle for Starship mm-hmm. Troopers 3 is Marauder? <laughs> yes. And folks, the reason I use that offensive term uh, for indigenous people is because I wanted to play on the fact that this still feels very fascist, right? Like, this... You know, we we literally laid it out. We're going to go to these other planets that have already been colonized. And we're going to go in with drop ships, with guns, and we're going to take them by force. So this is very much a statement on colonialism and imperialism. And we're meant to root for these people because we like them, but they are the bad guys. Yes. And I also, I'm sorry, I'm going back to this whole like, oh, we don't like the bugs because they send asteroids our way. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. You invaded them first. Well, where do they get the <laughs> asteroids from? And B, how do they make sure that this asteroid, like, goes to Earth? <laughs> 
okay, so you missed it. There's an asteroid belt around Clendathu. Oh, fuck. Okay. But also, it's a testament to their science and math abilities that they can directly throw them with enough accuracy to hit Earth. Oh, uh, which is, They're okay. smart. But also shows how stupid the humans are for underestimating them. Yes, correct. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so during this fort siege, Razchek is murdered. Well, he he's fatally injured, and he tells Rico to kill him. Oh, this is so sad. It is very sad, yes. Michael Ironside plays the shit out of this. It's important that every time Rico either gets promoted or has to do anything involving, like, a speech, he just parrots what Razchek has already said. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't even have a mind of his own. He's just regurgitating what has been told to him so that we propagate this cycle, this endless patriotic bullshit military yeah. cycle. Yeah. Nope, 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 nope. <laughs> so they end up getting rescued by Carmen, who very quickly realizes that Rico is still alive, but we don't really have time to deal with that because Carl has showed up in his full Nazi regalia, and he is sending them back to planet P to capture what we now realize is a brain bug. That's how they knew we were coming. We did skip over a p- kind of important thing, which is mm-hmm. Dizzy's death. Uh, yes, we sure did. <laughs> <laughs> it's very sad. It happens in slow motion. As soon as the camera goes to slow motion, you're like, well, he's not going to live past this. Um, yeah. I do love that we get like, because um, A, she somehow survives long enough to make it into this rescue thing, which mm-hmm. um, bitch was no. stabbed four times with these <laughs> pincers and also like waggled around like a little rag doll. Yeah. Um, she's like johnny i'm dying but it's all right because i got to have you and then she seems fine but then she's like oh oh, johnny don't Mm -hmm. let me go so i was watching this and as i've said numerous times brian doesn't usually watch the movies with me but because this wasn't quote unquote a proper horror film he was like i'll watch a little bit of this with you yeah so she's in his arms it's this like emotional moment the music is swelling Mm -hmm. johnny don't let me go he starts singing hold your breath monsieur marius (laughs) i'm like are you literally singing lame is to me eponine's death oh my god i mean (laughs) never change brian yeah it's it's suck but i she dies later in the movie than I remembered her. There's only there's, I mean, yeah. only there's only 30 minutes left in this two hour and 10 minute movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely forgot this movie was over two hours. Uh, I will say credits do roll at hour 59 because we have 10 minutes of credits. Well, yeah, because we have like five <laughs> years worth of special effects people to acknowledge. Because 40% of the movie is special effects. <laughs> exactly. Yes. All right, so Dizzy is dead. Carmen realizes that Rico is still alive. Ooh, we can reactivate that love triangle. And uh, Rico inherits the Roughnecks because, of course, Razchek is dead. So it becomes his Roughnecks now. Mm -hmm. Uh, We move to Planet P to try to capture the brain bug. So we see that the Roger Young gets exploded because they flew too close to plasma butt bursts again. (laughs) these fart balls man mm-hmm. uh oh i actually so this is actually for some reason the one scene that i remember the most growing up because mary alice i'm sorry brenda <laughs> deladier i believe deladier um yeah. has a door shut on her as she is trying to escape uh-huh. this thing <laughs> it's the most 
fucking unceremonious death anyone in this movie gets. Everybody else is like killed in action. It's beautiful violence. This bitch just gets cut in half by a door. And this happens a lot in space movies. And I want to be like, mm-hmm. why don't they have motion sensors? But I think the <laughs> idea is if a portion of the ship gets destroyed, like we have sure. to have like airtight, like, no, nope, this is shut. <laughs> yes. You you nailed it. There you go. Look, I'm doing critical thinking. You're practically a science person. Like, I think you'd probably end up in mobile infantry, but like, you might have done okay on the mouse. I think I'm games in theory. Oh, oh, okay. (laughs) I'm a psychic. I was going to say, your psychic abilities are not super great because sometimes I'm like, Trace, shut up. Okay, so Xander and uh, Carmen make an escape pod into the worst possible place they could on this planet. Yeah, they literally crash dead in the center of Bug City. And this is basically when we we think that they are dead. There's no way they could have possibly survived because it it looks exactly like the fort where they're just completely surrounded. Yeah, And then Rico gets a psychic intuition that they should go down a certain path because that's where Carmen is. And while we can't save Xander, who gets his brain sucked out oh. by the brain bug, love this practical effect on Patrick Muldoon's sunken, like, apple face. It's like, did you ever make those those apple faces for Halloween and they, like, basically just dry up and shrinkle? No. No, but it reminds me of a, war, a warhead's face. But, okay, in the 90s, mm-hmm. I want to say it always on UPN. There was it was either called Mosquito or it was called Skeeter. There are two of these. There, both of these movies exist. I don't remember which one it is. Okay, but they both involve obviously giant mutant mosquitoes. Naturally, yeah. And when they suck you, they, they, they do this to you. <laughs> and I I saw this on TV as like a kid where it, I was not. I probably was not old enough to have seen this. And it mm-hmm. like the imagery of like the sunken in face just yeah. scared the shit out of me. And so when I finally saw this movie, it like was PTSD oh, no. <laughs> where I was like, no, I don't want to see that. <laughs> it's very upsetting. And like, we even have to see this giant, like, I mean, a it, folks, the reason we're talking about this in part is because it has Neil Patrick Harrison and he's playing against type as, I mean, baby fascist, and he's very smart and all this kind of fun stuff. But, I mean, I forgot how weirdly sexual the brain bug is, because it's basically a vagina Mm -hmm. with a proboscis that comes out, and then it just sucks Patrick Muldoon's brains out. And the sound effect is tantamount to someone slurping something through a straw. And you see the brain brain going through the tube. Yes. And it's so... so Because the brain comes... It's a giant CGI creation. It looks the most cartoonish, I think, out of most of the CGI in this movie. I think so, yeah. But in those close-ups where we have Mm. a practical model of this thing, and this... So good. I love the word proboscis, by the way. (laughs) But uh, this proboscis is not... it is just leaking mm-hmm. goo. I, oh, I also, <laughs> I love that it sticks it out and it kind of like waits. And then Xander's like, we're going to exterminate your whole fucking race. And it's like, yeah. no, you won't. And just like, <laughs> stabs him in the head. <laughs> yeah. It's just like a juice box only for brains. Also, though, he gives Denise Richards this knife, which mm-hmm. she uses to save herself. Yes. Which he smart. could have used to save the both. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think he figured that she would have a better chance after maybe everyone was distracted when he was dead. Like this is very much, I'm going to be a man and I'll murder myself to save you. And she's like, cool, give me the knife. Well, you know what? Dizzy at least gets eulogized and ejected out into space. This fucker's left with the bugs. 
Oh, sure. Yeah, because we just blow up this body and everyone <laughs> in these canyons. <laughs> Sacrificing the black character, by the way. Indeed, yes. In a film filled with white characters who are supposed to be from Buenos Aires. <laughs> Not a great look. Not a great look. Uh, it's 1997. It is, yes. We will acknowledge that and we will still point it out. Okay, so yes, we have blown this up, but we have managed to rescue Carmen. So we run out and jubilation trace. Everybody is celebrating. Yes, this is meant to look like D-Day. Mm. I really need to watch more war movies. I've never seen Saving Private Ryan. I've never seen Dunkirk. I've never seen... But I just don't want to. It's fair. It's fair. I mean, you could look at this and just say, oh, okay, we're celebrating because we've captured the brain bug. I got it. But... Mm. There is a lot of particularly like in some of the battle sequences in the ways that, yes, the the sky marshals are framed and so on. Like you can see that Verhoeven is actively trying to recreate famous military images. Yeah, that makes honestly. So, yeah, if you actually you have a wealth of war knowledge, uh, you probably will get more out of this movie than either Joe or I will. For sure. Okay, so the brain bug has been captured, and Carl, using his psychic intuition, manages to deduce, hey, this fucker's scared. <laughs> Brilliant. I'm so glad that your brains and knowledge and games and theory got us that tidbit of information. So what's interesting, and I'm going to bring Berliner back in here, is the movie is again doing this tightrope walking thing where you know we have learned that the enemy that we previously thought was very stupid and basic right like we were just talking down to the bugs and the arachnids because we thought that they were just insects and it turns out we were wrong they're actually quite smart we underestimated them Mm -hmm. and now we've got this brain bug so we should be thinking about this alien race in different ways like we shouldn't be excited to commit genocide (laughs) against them And yet when Carl says he's afraid, he says it not once but twice, and everyone just fucking cheers because it's like, awesome, this smart adversary who we underestimated knows that we've gotten the upper hand on him. So Berliner says the film has again used genre cues to confound its ideological meaning, leading us to expect a scene of empathy and reconciliation, but instead depicting the human race as a pitiless band of jingos. Uh, well and then we see in the propaganda film that closes the movie yeah it's like they are essentially mm-hmm. raping this thing oh yeah and there's such a disconnect between what this announcement is saying like you know our scientists are studying it and you just see them shoving these giant pointy pitchforky style instruments into like the side of it into the hole where the proboscis has been yep. cut off and it's like censored yeah you're just like oh god this is well, I- <laughs> Because <laughs> they censor all the violence, which I found very interesting. However, mm-hmm. they have um, public executions of criminals on on prime time at six. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and, and that's really important, right? Because human beings matter in this world, right? Like these are bodies that could be used to advance the fight. So when you go up against it, you need to be publicly executed because we have no sympathy for that. That person's not worthy. Whereas these bugs are not real, right? Like we want to pretend at censoring what we're doing to the brain bug, but like it's so ridiculous. You know exactly what they're doing because the censorship thing doesn't cover anything you can even <laughs> still hear the sound oh i know oh god i've been watching that documentary don't fuck with cats on netflix because my husband wanted me to watch it and mm-hmm. i've read so much about it you know because it's like this animal it's videos of animal cats it's animal killed. cruelty yeah and they don't show it 
but they let you hear it while someone Ooh. else on the screen watches the video and like narrates what they are seeing. No, no, thank I you. I know it's it's Mm-mm. it's rough, and so that's this. I mean, it's just like things I'm watching at the same time. But um, fun fact: so um, there was a scene of Carmen kissing Rico at the end, but it was cut because this is, again, people hate women. Um, a, they thought it was immoral after what? Xander's death, and were unconvinced that a woman could love both men simultaneously. Oh my god! So she's I a can't. bitch for wanting to kiss Rico so soon after Xander's death. <laughs> And they wanted Carmen to die because of the aforementioned choosing her career over her boyfriend. Wow. We just really hate women, don't we? <laughs> like, I am just like, what, y'all? Ugh. I get not wanting Dizzy to die. I mean, no one, that's sure. why she dies. Like, that is an emotional gut punch of a death. She's the Randy of Starship Troopers. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, but I just think that's so funny. Like, oh, she picked a career over her boyfriend. Oh, like, oh, Needs she should be kissing Rico after her other <laughs> boyfriend just died. Okay, whatever. Fuck you. Yeah, uh, even though it would make sense, because if we are doing the D-Day imagery, there's that famous picture of the soldier kissing the woman in, like, Times Square. <laughs> and it's like, oh, you could literally recreate that. Uh, yeah, I would be surprised that's how it was framed, actually. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, whatever. But, um... So, yeah, we get this final FedNet report that, uh, yeah, so we're sticking shit into the brain bug, and then we talk about how we're going to keep fighting and how we're going to win, but we need more soldiers, Trace. We need you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> soldiers like, Fleet Captain Carbon Ibanez. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Yep, we just trot out all of our war heroes, all of the ones who don't have, like, amputations, but still look pretty, you know, like people who might appear on soap operas. Yeah. So So I'm going to close out with one final quip from Berliner. He says, the film offered so many challenges. So this is... His whole piece, as a reminder, is uh, a bit of a retrospective about why people may have struggled to understand the movie's intentions and as a result, why it maybe didn't perform so well at the box office. Mm -hmm. So he says, the film offered so many challenges that I suspect many spectators unable to cope with the ambiguities of its ideology and genre identity gave up the effort to understand it. Hollywood blockbusters must not deviate so erratically from their genre identity that they alienate members of their target audience and overwhelm the capacity of average spectators to cope. For a genre film to succeed in a mass market, so he says, like, the film was always primed to be a cult film, which is, of course, what it became, but it was meant to be for a mass audience, and the reason it fails is because they were confused by these genre miscues. So he says, viewers must be able to identify what kind of film they are watching. So it's not even the marketing, it's the film itself cannot be so confusing that genre audiences get confused. (laughs) So he says, Starship Troopers is that rare, unruly, exhilarating Hollywood genre film that refuses to behave like any other film in the genre i don't know if i should be offended by that i mean he's basically saying people were, were too stupid <laughs> but, but no not audience <laughs> genre fans are stupid <laughs> i i think it's because of this idea that genres have conventions and when the films don't play to those conventions we get confused and we say well this isn't what i expected so you're not doing oh, it right damn it see he's not exactly wrong there though because that's the th- mm-hmm. that's the thing right like we always cry. We want something. We want original horror. We want original horror. But then we get original horror. And no one goes to see it. But oh, we don't want remakes. Right. But then you know when remakes come out, they make a million dollars. So it's like, mm-hmm. 
we are an unruly bunch. And also what we're saying is here, Paul Verhoeven made a complex, nuanced film masquerading as a corny as summer a big, blockbuster. stupid film. Yes. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. which, and that's something he's always, he's always really good at making these, com- I mean, look, go look at fucking L for a very different example Ooh. of a complex nuanced film. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we like Verhoeven so much. He's now, if I'm counting correctly, because we have covered Hollow Man, this basic instinct and showgirls, he is tied with Mike Flanagan as our second most covered director on the pod. Interesting. And I mean, we have more. I think more horror movies from him. Actually, no, because we have the fourth man we need to find, which I think it's just not streaming anywhere. Yeah, it's never available, but I'm desperate to cover it. Uh, Bisexual well, man yeah, in the looking. 80s. I mean, you know what, though? We can cover Robocop and Total Recall. Those are things we can do. Oh, man. I I love both those movies, too. I do. I never thought in a million years I would. Even Total Recall, which I was like, that doesn't really look like something I would enjoy. They are so much fun. <laughs> so good. Yeah. <laughs> Just like vivid characters, weird interactions, memorable action sequences, using actors that you expect to not be great in something to like their maximum efficiency. Mm-hmm. Ah, Verhoeven. So, so, so good. I mean, uh, he is 84 years old. I will be shocked if we get more than one two, or two two more films out of him. Yeah, because mm-hmm. we just got Benedetta last year. But yeah. Oh, okay. So that 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 is Starship <laughs> Troopers. <laughs> yes, that is Starship Troopers. Um yeah, I I I love this movie and mm-hmm. I'm glad that I got to watch it now uh because I I got so much more out of it. And of course from all your readings, those were very very enlightening. Uh this again, yeah, this film is just so much more complex than you would than it would have you believe. Yeah, and like you, I saw this at an age where I sh- I feel like I should have been old enough to understand what it was doing. And I think I got part of it. Like I understood some of the Nazism and I obviously understood we were kind of making fun of how militaristic they were, but I really didn't understand how many, how many like real life things Verhoeven was pulling from. And we didn't mention it. Like you said in your production history that, he has an experience like he lived through the second world war in the netherlands and like a lot of the imagery of like the ships blowing up is actually drawn from his own memories of watching that happen during the second world war so it's like this is real shit for him it's not cartoony stupid he was born in 38 so he would have been seven when world war ii ended but Mm. again that's an impressionable age so those those images are probably burned in his brain yeah but um Okay, well, um, before we announce what we're covering <laughs> next week, uh, everyone, uh, just some housekeeping to get out of the way really quick. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers. Shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. Go to our YouTube channel to check out our videos with various horror filmmakers, as well as our monthly hangouts where we talk about hot-button issues with some of our peers. Uh, if you want to chat with other listeners, join our Facebook Horror Queers group. And if you want to show us some love, uh, please rate and and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you want even more content, uh, support mm-hmm. the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. Uh, this month on Patreon, we've got episodes discussing the ethics and morals of true crime horror. Uh, this year's blockbusters that we kind of missed, Smile and Barbarian. An episode on The Menu, the uh, new satire starring Anya Taylor-Joy. And an audio commentary on The Collection the sequel to The Collector, for its 10th anniversary. 
Mm-hmm. And folks, if you haven't seen The Collector, bear in mind that we will probably talk a little bit about it during that audio commentary. But yeah, it's uh, definitely worth checking out. Yeah, uh, those are very solid post-Saw. Mm-hmm. I don't even want to call them torture porn, but they are violent. <laughs> they are violent. They're, they can be hard to watch. So a bit of content advisory. But I mean, yeah, if you can make it through a Saw film, you're... You're in a good standing. Yeah. Um, But okay, Joe, so uh, what are we doing next week to continue November? Okay, so I won't lie. I have been waiting to talk about this film with you since we started the podcast. We're switching gears. We're going to go foreign. We're sticking in the 90s, though. But we are going to change medium. So we're going to talk about only our second ever animated film on the podcast with Perfect Blue. Oh, okay. Um, you are not the first. <laughs> I'm sorry. I sound disinterested in this. Um, I, I just don't have. A, okay. I, I don't have a lot of knowledge of anime outside of Pokemon. Uh, mm-hmm. so I, I I know nothing about this. But you are the second person who has been like Trace. You need to watch Perfect Blue. So yep. I, I'm cautiously optimistic. <laughs> So I fucking love this movie. It's one of the most gorgeous animated films I've ever seen. And it is fucking weird and amazing. It's like, yeah, pop doppelgangers, people. Get ready. Ooh, and if you've never heard of this like me, um, as I'm dating it. But right now, at this moment, streaming on Shudder. Mm-hmm. So yeah. until next week, uh, we can cross out Starship Troopers. Indeed, and cross out horror queers. 